This is Here's How, Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast, presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading episode 123 of Here's How for the 22nd of July, 2021. If you had to choose between jail and giving the Guardi the password to all your online accounts, would you choose Mount Joy or Wheatfield? Let's talk to an academic to weigh up your options. Here's How is Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast. Make your view heard. Just dial 076 603 5060 and tell the world what you're thinking. Your voicemail may be included in the next podcast. You can find tips on recording your contribution and other ways to contact the show at hereshow.ie slash call. In a few minutes we'll have this. If the Guardi were using it to gain access to you know, uh, sensitive information that isn't yours, that could be unlawful. So, but but it's it's on your device. And are, are we expecting them just to cross their heart and hope to die and to, like, not well, look at that? Well, I mean, so, I mean, you're getting into a tricky territory here about what the Guardi may come across, what they may access, uh, and what they could use against you. That's coming up shortly. But first, I want to thank all of my donors on Patreon, especially Dragos Staichu, who signed up as a patron since the last podcast. I really appreciate everyone who does that. If you don't know, Patreon is basically a system that allows people to donate a dollar or two or a euro or two per podcast or per month. And that helps me to do more research and find interesting guests. If you think that you could do the same as Dragos or the other donors, there's details on the website and at the end of this show. So then this happened. AA Ireland is to discontinue its Roadwatch traffic and travel reports after almost 32 years of broadcasting on radio. And with no notice at all, in the space of a single day, AA Roadwatch disappeared off our airwaves. AA Roadwatch launched the careers of a number of broadcasters and presenters. Latest travel news from the AA. It's a dry start to the day on the roads across the country this morning. After almost 32 years, AA Ireland is to drop the mic on its traffic and travel reports. From tomorrow, it will no longer provide a... According to their own announcement, this was a decision made by the AA, which, quote, decided to move away from this service and instead focus on growing other areas of their business. That's corporate speak for closing down an unprofitable business. I had quite a few people get in touch with me about this, mostly wondering whether I had something to do with it. If you're not familiar with my history on this, it's pretty long-running, but in brief, the AA is a registered political lobbyist. It's their job to persuade people, in particular politicians, to be more favourable towards the motor industry. In short, build more roads and less public transport. They seem to have been pretty successful. In the last few decades, while most of Europe developed sophisticated public transport, Ireland earmarked billions for motorways, often to places like Limerick and Westport, that couldn't remotely generate the amount of traffic that would justify the scale of the projects. Public transport in Ireland is pathetic compared to most continental countries. The only major project in the last 30 years has been the Lewis, and even this was ferociously resisted by the AA's lobbying. They were central to the decision to punch the heart out of the system and make sure that the two lines didn't initially connect, a decision that cost the taxpayer hundreds of millions of euro and commuters a decade of inconvenience. 
The AA used AA Roadwatch to, day in, day out, beat the drum that the only significance of the Lewis was how it caused traffic congestion. I took several complaints that all basically said that political lobbyists aren't allowed to supply content for broadcast on RTE, and RTE used every trick in the book to defeat those complaints. Then, one Friday morning in July, the AA said that the slots were axed. It was obviously a pretty hurried decision. The staff didn't even finish their day's work. AA Roadwatch was broadcast normally on Friday morning. The announcement was made that day, and the whole thing was shut down so fast that they didn't even do the drive time slots on Friday afternoon. The South Dublin accents, the expose, the reporting of a new bus corridor as though it was the siege of Mafeking, all the jokes about pronunciation of a car crash at a roundabout, I'm not going to do the accent, I'm no good at that, I'm not Mario. Uh, The loose horses, the traffic jams caused by Lewis works, it was all gone. A cultural phenomenon just disappeared. But that wasn't even the strangest part of it. The reasons given by the AA to axe the slot were A, that they wanted to, as they put it, focus on other areas of business, basically save money, and B, because technology has moved on and people have smartphones that give traffic information that they can actually use, making AA Roadwatch even more useless than it already was. These seem like nonsense to me. Firstly, the point about traffic on smartphones, that's been true for the best part of a decade. It doesn't really ring true that A management only heard of smartphones last Friday week. But the really strange one is that this is a cost-cutting measure. AA Roadwatch was insanely good value for the AA. Now, it's true that my complaints did have some effect My complaints were rejected, but the bulletins normally ended with giving out the AA's phone number and web address, supposedly to report traffic, but coincidentally, both the phone line and the website were overwhelmingly used to sell the AA's insurance. On the same day that RT wrote their defence to the Broadcasting Authority, that call to action was dropped from the format. Despite that, Have a listen to what Dr. Michael Foley, the Professor Emeritus at the School of Media at TU Dublin, and also a member of the NUJ's Ethics Council, said on the podcast in February 2019. I admit that I hadn't thought about it till I I heard your your, your piece. Um, I think it is an incredible, has become an incredible brand because of the AA, because of AA Roadwatch. So that's what the AA got. But what did it cost them? The AA was produced by seven part-time staff. Their typical researcher was a recent PR graduate. None of them had any qualifications in transport or any related field. Even if you're doing it rich and paying 50 grand a full-time equivalent, that would work out at less than 200 grand in staff costs. And let's be really generous and assume the same again for non-salary costs. You get up to maybe 400 grand. That's the annual cost of producing the 12,000 slots that went out on all RTE stations, plus Today FM and a couple of locals. Even if you forget about the other stations and just consider the RTE slots, that works out at €33 each. Contrast that with the cost of a 30-second ad on Morning Ireland. 
that would set you back anything up to two and a half thousand euro or more. Advertising rates change according to the time of day and the time of year, but considering that most of these Roadwatch slots were in prime time, and they were 90 seconds long, buying that much advertising would easily set you back 50 million euro a year. To be fair, I did put a little dent in the commercial value of them, and the branding value is priceless, but let's not call those slots real ads. In fact, let's be really generous and discount their value by 80%. That still leaves the AA getting 10 million euros worth of advertising for less than 400,000 in production costs. So the reasoning that this is a cost-saving measure just doesn't wash. Another thing, the AA said that they would be keeping up the traffic reporting service, just not on the radio. That promise didn't last long. The AA Roadwatch Twitter account averaged about 40 tweets a day on traffic reports. It basically went dark the moment that the announcement was made. So the answer is the best that I have is guesses. Maybe RTE realised that, notwithstanding their win against me at the BAI, the whole thing was legally unsustainable and closed it down a decent interval after declaring victory. Maybe it's not unrelated that we happen to have a Green Party Minister for Communications. Maybe it was something else. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, dial 076-603-5060 and leave a contribution for the show. The lines are open 24-7 and you can find tips on how to record a good contribution and other ways to contact the podcast at hereshow.ie slash call. On the line, I have Keanu Krohor. He is Assistant Professor of Criminal Justice at the Department of Law in NUI Maynooth. And he's been writing about the heads of bill, which are before the dole at the moment, of a bill called the Garda Shihona Powers Bill. Uh, briefly, Kian, what is that bill supposed to do? Uh, thank you, William. Yeah, so it's a kind of an omnibus uh, reform piece of legislation that is brought about because of uh, two kind of recommendations that come uh, to the government. One was from the uh, Commission on the Future Policing, which has recommended a lot of the changes that are incorporated in this. And also the Law Reform Commission has made some recommendations on how we should change certain powers that Angarda Shia have and some of the processes that are that govern those powers. So the main areas of reform are really the ones that have interested people uh, and have been written about quite a lot over the past few weeks is this is a very significant reform of uh, the powers of Garda powers of arrest and detention uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, bringing it all together. So uh, currently it's under the Garda powers are kind of spread across a number of different pieces of legislation. This is going to bring it all within one clear piece of legislation. Some of the existing that, that's legislation. Something, that's something for the nerdy lawyers to, to yeah. all, you know, to have all the legislation clarified and so forth yeah, from a legal point of view. But from, but from a, the, a real but, person's but, point of view, what, what actual changes are likely to be made? Yeah, so there's a very significant extension. Well, I mean, I should say that when you get these rationalizations, it's good for the citizens as well, in theory, because it's easier for you to see as a citizen, well, what are the Garda powers, mm -hmm. where you can find in one piece of legislation what the Garda powers are, and the language has been changed. But one of the most significant changes that people have, have been particularly worried about is uh, the Garda are going to be given a new power where they can compel 
uh, an individual to uh, give them their pass password for an electronic device. Now they can only guardy can only compel this uh, uh, when they are uh, using you know they're working under a search warrant. So this is uh, the district court has given the guardy a search warrant to go and search your house. They pick up one of your electronic devices like your iPhone and they want to access it because they want to, you know, they want to get information from it. And on at that moment, they can say to you to say, you know, please give us the password. And if you don't do that, you may be committing a criminal offence. OK, pause on that, because there's a couple of things that jump out at me straight away. The first is that you're recommended not to do it, but I know that people do it, which is to reuse passwords. So if you're giving somebody your password for the electronic device. It's possible also that you're giving them your password perhaps for your online banking. You're perhaps giving them your password for social media sites. You're perhaps giving them a password for a whole slew of maybe very sensitive sites, uh, you know, dating sites or whatever might be, uh, some people might view as very sensitive uh, and indeed uh, other things that people regard as very private. Is that taken into account at all? That's a really good question. I, I don't think it has been taken into account. I think m the response of the government would probably be, well, look, once the Guardi are operating within the remit of what the search warrant was granted, then that's all they're concerned about. If the Guardi go beyond that, they're engaging in unlawful action themselves. So if they're accessing, unless the warrant includes, you know, gives the Guardi power to go and search for financial records and things like that. And they often do, you know, part of a Garda search would be that they can rifle through, you know, your bank statements if they're on your premises. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't be beyond the bounds of possibility that if they're on your premises and they're accessing your computer. Oh, but but that's, that's, not a correct, that's not a correct analogy, Keon, because this is more like they get a search warrant for your premises and that allows them to show up at the bank and get all of your bank records. Um, well, I mean, it depends what is on your bank. So most of the time, what's on your bank statement is the same thing you would get on your uh, on your online banking. Uh, uh, most of the time, perhaps, but this, but you'd have to agree that people that once you have the password for online accounts that people have, which may well be a password for a whole slew of different and unrelated things, that yeah. is likely con to contain vastly more and vastly more sensitive information than might, yeah. you know, just be stored in paper uh, at somebody's premises. Absolutely. And like, so, I mean, you're, well, I, we, we can maybe agree to disagree about what the extent of the access might be on a bank, an online banking form. But I think if your point is around other kinds of social media sites that you might be engaged in, yes, it would give them extensive access. And they may be looking for that, you know, a part of their search warrant, depending on the nature of the offence that they're uh, investigating, they may be they, the guardian may wish to access your social media accounts to find out what mm -hmm. messages you've been sending. Like it's it's pretty standard. It has been pretty standard for the past number of decades with um, with mobile phones that when the guardian executing a search, that they would you know try and get access to your phone to see who you've been calling ask you questions about who you've been calling, check those numbers against other databases. Uh, so this is definitely an enhancement of their capacity to do that uh, if they can compel you to give over, if they can legally compel you to hand over passwords. But again, it wouldn't be necessarily beyond the bounds of like normal investigatory 
uh, investigatory powers. This just makes it a bit more easy. It's, it's likely problem- also it's likely also that a great many people behind that. So that one password that maybe unlocks your phone as it usually is could yeah. well give somebody access to it. perhaps not the same password, but just that there are embedded passwords in that that, for example, allow you to get onto your employer's network and have a whole host of sensitive commercial information. Yeah, uh, well, that, that, that may be unlawful. That may be unlawful. So if they if the guardy were using it to gain access to, you know, uh, sensitive information that isn't yours, that could be unlawful. So, but that but it's it's on your device, and are are we expecting them just to cross their heart and hope to die, and to like not well, look at that? Well, I mean, so I mean, you're getting into a tricky territory here about what the guardy may come across, what they may access, uh, and what they could use against you in a criminal prosecution. So if they're bound, if they're searched, and this, this isn't unusual that the bounds of uh, Garda search, that it exceeds their lawful boundaries, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's the constitutional lawful boundaries, you know, that isn't uncommon for a variety of reasons. This happens now, what matters probably matters most to the vast majority of people is whether that can be used against you, whether the Garda would be entitled to bring any information they found as a result of that unlawful search into a court as evidence to be used as a prosecution. Yeah, uh, that's that's a whole that's a whole different story because Guardi, of course, can use the information that they find for a whole slew of other purposes other than bring it into a court as absolutely. evidence. I'll come back to that in a little bit, and that's worrying enough, I think, for a lot of people, but you were writing particularly about how this might impact journalists. Tell yeah. me about that. Yeah, so uh, as I explained to you before we started recording, I've had an interest. So this isn't necessarily my core area of research interest, but I have developed an interest in journalistic privilege in Ireland, the legal recognition of a thing called journalistic privilege uh, that's been developing over the past 12, 13 years or so. It began in a Supreme Court case back in 2009, where uh, the Irish Times was sued by the uh, the, uh, the Mahan Tribunal for because their documents were leaked to them. And they claimed privilege over that. And the Supreme Court eventually recognized that. Now, the nature of what that means, what journalistic privilege means, has still been contested. From journalist perspective, they think, right, when we claim privilege over any information because we want to protect our sources and their identities, that means we just we can refuse outright to engage with any court demands. And now the court's view is, well, we may recognize something that looks a bit like journalistic privilege, but ultimately the courts get to decide. And the problem with the current legislation that governs uh, warrants uh, that the Gardaí can use, that governs the granting of warrants to Gardaí mm-hmm. to search your premises, and this is continued in the new bill, is that it doesn't allow that court who gives the Gardaí that warrant, when they're making that decision about whether to grant Gardaí that warrant, it doesn't allow that court to take into consideration, well, look, the Gardaí are looking to search a journalist premise here, premises here. Maybe they may have an interest in protecting their sources. Maybe we shouldn't grant this warrant because we want to respect their constitution, and it is a constitutional right, and their European Convention on Human Rights rights to protect their confidential sources. Mm-hmm. As it currently stands, there is no way, like, so the, the Gardaí are automatically often granted these warrants, and they can come in and they can seize journalistic material and you know one of the one of the uh, currently you know if it's in a password protected device at least the journalist can refuse to give that uh, password to the guard and then maybe they can institute proceedings in a higher court probably the high court mm-hmm. uh, to try and stop um this you know to get to get the guardy to hand back any information they may have that might identify their sources uh but the current legislate the proposed legislation 
you know, particularly around the area of passwords, compelling people to give passwords, that could really compromise even that narrow bit of protection journalists currently. Do, do, do I understand it correctly that what you're saying, the problem here is that um, it might be the case that if the Guardi got hold of a password-protected device belonging to a journalist, the journalist could then go to court and say, well, I'm a journalist and this has information about confidential sources on it. Yeah. And the court might rule in their favour, but it might not. And might isn't good enough. Journalists want to have the certainty that they can say to their sources, you yeah. you know, you will not be exposed as a source. Not yeah. that They don't want to be able to say to a source, well, I'll promise to go to court and I might or might not win to keep you secret. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that, that's absolutely the position of journalists around the world when it comes to this question. Their view is um, that the privilege, and they call it a privilege, and there's a reason they call it a privilege, which I can explain in a minute. Courts mm. don't call it privilege because privilege has a very distinct meaning in our legal system. Uh, privilege is normally like what what are what are privileged disclosures or communications are usually between lawyers and their clients, and none of that can ever be compelled in a court. Like yeah, the, so pri know, pri privilege has a legal meaning. That's to say, if I go to my lawyer, nobody can, there, there isn't, it's not the case that my lawyer can say, I sh can go before a court and say, please don't force me to tell, yeah. to, to say what my client told me. The lawyer can basically thumb their nose and say, you have no power to do yes. that. It's not based on a court decision that might go this way or that way. It is yeah. an absolute, and journalists like to call this a privilege, even though it doesn't have that status in law. It's, uh, let's say, Yes. an opportunity that they have to do that yeah so the re i think the reason they call it a privilege is because as far as they're concerned they're ethically bound apologies now i keep getting uh, notifications so i'll turn that off so the problem is journalists uh want it they like from their perspective as i understand it ethically they feel like it doesn't matter what the court's view is on whether or not the court's you know, what, like what the court's view is on the status of that privilege, journalists feel they're always ethically bound to protect their sources. So regardless of what the court's view is, um, they're going to do that. And it's kind of this becomes a, a dispute, really. It's beyond the legal realm because it, the Irish court's attitude isn't unusual. Mm -hmm. This is a common even in the United States. So this States, is a tension America, between journalists and, and the legal system the courts, that is not fully yeah. re resolved. Yeah. And I, I like one way to think about it. So if you look at the US where, you know, most people would say journalists enjoy in, incredible protections under the Constitution, even there, the courts have been very hostile to claims of journalistic privilege. And they've put journalists in prison uh, for, on contempt of court for refusing to disclose their sources. And the difference here, to th the way to think about it is normally the courts in advanced liberal democracies, if it's the state in terms of the executive, that's the government or the legislature or someone else, if they're trying to compel journalists to do something, then the courts are maybe more sympathetic. But when it's the courts who want the information for themselves, when they want a question answered and they feel like the, the journalists can help it, the courts are unsympathetic uh, to journalist claims of like, like, you know, looking for an enhanced uh, privilege protection under the constitution. Do, do, do they have a point? You know, if if um, uh, bank manager, for example, was ordered to hand over financial records, um, he, he doesn't uh, start beating his 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 chest and going on prime time or, or whatever and uh, talking about banking ethics, whatever that might be. Um, yeah. Why are journalists so special? There's lots well, of people. I mean, there's lots of people who who rely on on confidentiality, and all of them are amenable to the courts. Why are journalists saying that you know they should be beyond the law? 
Yeah, so I mean, this is part the reason courts have maybe they've not recognized the full privilege, but courts have granted, at least in this part of the world, they've granted some protections for confidentiality for journalists specifically and other publishers is because in, in our constitution, in the European Convention on Human Rights and in the US Constitution, a lot of these legal documents, they say journalists are special, news media are special, they're really important. Uh, for you know, guaranteeing the health of our democracies, they're an important transparency and accountability tool. And while it might not say all that in the text of the Constitution, it is it's a really common theme that constitutional courts, courts around the world, have interpreted these freedom of expression clauses. There are freedom of expression guarantees in these various documents. They've interpreted them to mean that journalists are really important. The free flow of information is really important because. It allows for, you know, voters, the ordinary citizens to see what's happening in the corridors of power. And that's what as a, it's a corollary of this freedom of expression guarantee that gives journalists this other uh, that, that journalists claim. And the courts have agreed gives journalists this other protection, this confidentiality protection, because journalists. In order so so to are they are they essentially saying are they essentially saying well freedom of speech is so important therefore journalists who are important to freedom of speech should have you know by virtue of us saying freedom of speech is important we also read into that a special right which says that journalists should get special treatment compared to the bank manager or whatever anybody who who might say that their business also de- depends on confidentiality yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's fundamentally is who is more important for the health of a democracy? Is a banker more healthy? No. I mean, and textually in the Constitution, the text of our Constitution and other documents, it says freedom of expression is really important for democracy. And journalists are a huge part of that. Not just journalists, other people as well. But when it comes to enhancing free flow of information, most people credit journalists with being kind of the main drivers, the main engine of encouraging the free flow of information. Okay, okay. I want to pause that. And obviously, you're a law professor, and that has a, you know, that gives you a particular perspective. Uh, But is it not possibly true that away from, I don't know if you have ivory towers in Maynooth, but away from the ivory towers, that this has an awfully different ring to it. And I'm thinking perhaps, for example, in 2017, with the journalist Dara Quigley, she was mentally ill and she was videoed by Garda Surveillance Video naked and in very considerable distress. Mm. Uh, Members of the Garda then back at the control centre where they have these screens, videoed the screen, just literally pointed their phone at a video screen displaying this, shared that on WhatsApp that was shared on social media and was viewed more than 100,000 times. Five days later, Dara Quigley committed suicide. And that seems to me to be a very, clearly a very serious event but it seems to be more typical of how things go in the Garda Shikona in that these very legalistic rules perhaps are implemented when a case is being built for court. But most of what the Garda do doesn't end up in court. And Ireland is, is a small country of small towns. The likelihood is that this is going to be massively abused. You know, what happens where a Garda comes across someone who is, for example, going out with his ex and thinks there might be, for example, intimate photos of her or him on a phone? This is the sort of thing that's going to crop up and going to cause huge problems, isn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there is an, um, it's important to differentiate uh, the capacity of the law to regulate behavior and also, you know, our need to empower. So there's two things going on here. Depends on what you view these legal regimes as doing. Are they constraining police power or are they providing or expanding police power? And there's an ongoing tension about what that what this is doing. Um, but pause, a, before, before you continue, just a yes or no question. Are you aware of or do you know when the last bill went through the doll which reduced Garda powers? Uh, I don't believe there has been any reduction on Garda powers. Uh, Ever. In the past. Uh, not that I'm aware of. I, mean, in, in, I, I, I think you're correct. Have, in the history I, of the yeah. state, every single, and we've had many, many of them, every single uh, bill on this subject has reduced citizens' rights and increased Garda powers, hasn't it? I, I can't tell you for certain, but I would not be surprised if that was the case. Okay, but but continue then, and I interrupted you. Continue on this, because the reality is that the Guardi are not a well-behaved force. And we've seen recently, and we mentioned it briefly, uh, recently on this podcast, about the, the scandal over cancelling 999 calls. Mm. And to my mind, the root scandal there was not the actual cancelling, although that was extremely serious. What's really serious there is that none of those Gardaí have been disciplined in any way. They're still on the same job that they were failing terribly on. Mm. And the senior Gardaí who protected those, you know, you could perhaps, if you were generous, say incompetent or perhaps corrupt Gardaí, the same senior Gardaí who were protecting those Gardaí and refusing to hand over information to the policing authority also have not been removed. In any normal democracy, all of them would be sacked on the spot, wouldn't they? Um, well, no, I mean, I don't think that's the case. If you look at a lot of other jurisdictions that have dealt with policing scandals, the exact same patterns have fallen out. You know, it, these are extraordinarily complex the scandals, the nature of the wrongdoing, potential wrongdoing is extraordinarily complex and it can take ages to figure out what exactly was going wrong. But where, sen- where senior guardy refused to hand over information that would assist the inquiry into serious malpractice, yeah. that's, that's incredibly serious. And, th- and there, like, there is no, not even any discussion in the public domain as to how those uh, senior guardy who are protecting corrupt slash incompetent more junior guardy there's not even any discussion about disciplining them yeah so there's a number of different things going on here and i'm not i'm not i definitely do not want to be seen as a defender of ungarda shiokana but i do have experience of policing scandals in other jurisdictions so ungarda shiokana by comparison with other police forces in this part of the world are more secretive um, and less inclined to be towards transparency operational transparency than other police forces. You can look into our neighboring jurisdictions in England uh, and Wales and sometimes maybe Scotland to a certain extent. And generally, a lot of those police forces in those jurisdictions are much more comfortable being transparent. But you do still have the exact same scandals. And very recently, the Metropolitan Police in London, uh, you know, who've gone through decades of very significant reform, they're caught in this exact same trap of institutional defensiveness around potential perceived potential threats. Uh, roll back there, reputation. roll back there. I want you, I want to, the listeners to catch exactly what you said. You said after they've gone through decades of reform, which yes. is not what has happened to the Gardaí, they well, still, I mean, they well, still have very, very problematic behaviour. Well, there has been, I mean, 
there has been fairly significant reform of Angarda Shukana in the last, in terms of the governance architecture, you know, we've had since 2005, we've had very significant. Now it's flawed. I don't think anyone would argue that the reforms that were brought in uh, after the Morris Tribunal in 2005 have been a, a really spectacular success. But this takes... Well, you, you mentioned the Morris Tribunal, one, one particular guard who wasn't charged or suspected with, uh, with corruption in that was questioned as to why he didn't report corruption that he had witnessed. And he said, you don't hang your own. Do you think, and as I understand it, that Garda, who was clearly in dereliction of his duty, is still employed by the Gardaí. That is shocking, isn't it? It's absolutely shocking, but it is it is very, very common in police forces for you, what's called blue wall of silence or the blue code of silence. Uh, it's not unusual even in other uh, major, like t- the, the cultural dynamics in police forces definitely tend themselves towards institutional closure and defensiveness and secrecy. Uh, some forces have made a lot of effort. There's, I think there are complex reasons why Angarda Shukan has been very, very slow to reform as an organization. We're uh, way behind the curve, given the the, the developed yeah, nation of uh, you know where we are as a as yeah. a as a nation in terms of development. We are way behind the curve, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. I think Angarda Shukana, as public sector institutions go, is probably uh, is probably significantly bef- behind any other public in, in, uh, sector institution in terms of organizational change and reform. Part of that is rooted in government failure. Um, the government really didn't want to know about police reform until they were dragged kicking and screaming yep. by the Mars Tribunal partially, but they were able to fob that off as, you know, a few rotten apples um, because it was, you know, it was confined to a particular geographic location. In Donegal, and yep. it took And it took years to get through the tribunal. And even though uh, Judge Morris did really remarkable work in identifying serious cultural problems within the organization, it was very, very hard. And to be honest with you, the Irish public just wasn't willing to accept, nor are they willing to accept now that there's any serious problems. You know, if you look at trust and confidence data uh, with Angarda Shukan, it's probably without peer the most trusted police force in Europe. Now, there are very, like, there, the reasons for that are very, very complicated. Why people feel they can trust uh, a police force but that 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 fact of that very high level of trust and confidence that they routinely publish makes it very very difficult for a, a, a government to start coming in and and saying you know we need very there are serious problems here because their voters are saying that they trust the police force and while it's absolutely correct to say and we can say you know there is serious problems and we've been attempting reform it's very difficult to get political momentum behind reform. We saw that with the Disclosures Tribunal. The, re- the government really, really resisted until the very end uh, because they just didn't want to know. It's pol- it was seen as politically toxic to try and engage in this and not advantageous electorally either. Uh, and what's happened is what is unusual about the Irish reforms. And, you know, there are there are problems with the most recent round of reforms that came in uh, after the Disclosures Tribunal. Now we're going to have a, a completely our third new uh, governance architecture uh, following the Commission on the Future of Policing. What's that in, in plain English? What's the third new governance? So, so we we currently have the Policing Authority, which was set up in, as a direct response to the controversies. And the idea behind the Policing Authority is to, you know, remove politics from governance of policing. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to have a new system that's replacing the Policing Authority and the, the Garda uh, Shukana Inspectorate, which was set up in 2005, and the Garda Shukana Ombudsman Commission. 
so the Commission on the Future of Policing has recommended some changes, fairly significant changes to that. But all of this, what's different about Ireland, uh, and I, th I think it tells you a lot about the politics of it, of you know how the politics has played out uh, on, in policing and criminal justice is we've completely removed politics from the governance because in other, like if you look in other jurisdictions, it tends to be politicians who are involved in these. Which so is, it's Northern, the reverse of what has happened in the north. Yeah, absolutely. In Northern Ireland, the policing board is populated almost exclusively by politicians from the assembly. Um, so it's a highly politicised governance system in the north of Ireland and what we've done down here, which is interesting. Uh, and I think there are good reasons for doing it, because to be honest, in the north, there was a lot of there was a big political appetite for very significant policing reform coming, obviously coming from one side, you know, from the nationalist and Republican communities. But there was an appetite there. There's no appetite here. Okay, pause on that because I'm interested in that. And as for the uh, the trust uh, surveys, I I don't want to get into it. I don't think we have time in this interview, but I would perhaps question those. But I just want to go back to one incident that I think happened about 10 years ago when Luke Ming Flanagan was a new TD in Leinster House. And uh, anybody who's uh, been there will know that Leinster House uh, in the, the door buildings, access to that is really quite tightly controlled. You don't normally get let in unless you're being accompanied by someone and you have an invitation and so forth. Uh, but he had a senior member of the Guardi just kind of knock on his door, like of his immediate office, uh, and say, oh yeah, and give him some words of congratulations and then going away said, oh yeah, the, the, you had some penalty points there. We looked after that. That to me... And uh, uh, at the time, uh, as he admitted himself, he accepted that and did nothing about it. Uh, and it was, it was the, the penalty point scandal came out later. But that to me speaks to a very insidious behavior of soft corruption. Th th that is a serious thing that's happening there, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that that no wasn't a coincidence. I mean, that, that wasn't a coincidence that that, that Garda had, a senior Garda, by the way, had had that information, yeah. had it at his disposal at that time, uh, and not only being aware of the penalty points, but had them, as he put it, sorted out. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, and it is, I think it's, and that was the origin story, really, the penalty points, as you recall, was the origin story for what became the Disclosures Tribunal. I mean, it was a very, I mean, it's soft corruption that evolved because of the controversies around it. It evolved into very, very serious corruption by the most senior police officer in the state, mm -hmm. uh, corrupt, abusive power behavior, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so, but to draw back to the question, kind of your line. It was 2007, that incident, by the way, but in any case, go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, but the penalty point scandal that evolved in kind of 2011, 2012, it was, it, it was from cancelling of penalty points. from Correct, the yes. Yeah. Uh, so the, the story only crystallized a few years later, but that is the origin story. And absolutely, I don't think there's any doubt that that kind of soft corruption was pervasive. I'm not confident it's still like that, to be honest, because that was 2007. Uh, you know, there has been fairly significant change, just even in personnel in Ungarda Siakana. There has been a, a changing out of some of the older officers who would have had particular views on how you do policing, particularly outdated views on how you might do policing. And that's a slow process. And the lesson I probably should emphasize here is if your question is, how do we resolve this? Your, your line of questioning is kind of suggesting, well, we don't want to give these people too many powers. Maybe we should be retrenching Garda powers to teach them a lesson and ch changing police culture is not 
achievable by legal changes one way or the other. Uh, it takes a lot more of an invested, uh, concentrated, patient effort. It takes years to change these organizations because you're dealing with thousands and thousands of people who have been acculturated in a particular way. And I mean, it isn't talked about. I would have concerns about what was happening in Templemore over the decades mm-hmm. and the attitude to Garda training, uh, uh, but also just, you know, hiring standards, promotion standards, which has come up quite a lot. It, the, 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 the problems in the organization are extraordinarily deep, uh, but they won't be resolved by simple legislative changes one way or the other. And what's coming against that is is it like our complex crimes, basically, is the way to describe it. Increasingly complex crime, mm-hmm. the police forces, including on Garda Shukana, are, are expected. And this is the other side of the story is, you know, we've been focused on police wrongdoing. On Garda Shukana, despite its failures, does uh, like often does extraordinarily good work in terms of holding very serious wrongdoers to account. Uh, but a lot of the kinds of wrongs that we're more interested in now, particularly in the area of sexual violence, and child abuse uh, investigation that requires a degree of intervention, immediate state intervention. The public expect interventions a lot earlier, and that does require, uh, you know, enhancing in some degree, enhancing to some degree police power. So that's what's pushing against it here. Keona Crohur, Assistant Professor of Criminal Justice at the Department of Law in NUI Maynooth. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Here's How is Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast. Make your view heard. Record a contribution to be included in the next show. Just dial 076 603 5060 and tell the world what you're thinking. Your voicemail may be included in the next podcast. You can find tips on recording your contribution and other ways to contact the show at hereshow.ie slash call. Go to the website for sources and references from the show. And while you're there, you can like the show on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Here's How Podcast, and follow Kiano Crohor at Kiano Crohor. The spelling is on the website. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for the next show. Also, thanks again to Dragosh and to all of the patrons on Patreon. Their donations allow me to devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a euro or two per podcast or per month, please do go to patreon.com slash here's how. That link is on the website. Also there you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone or by email. All that information is at www.hereshow.ie. The Here's How podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. The assistant producer is Kevin Wolf. Thank you for listening.